The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin with an entry from the diaries of the great German polymath and humanist, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. The year is 1808. The man was almost 60, famous throughout Europe for his poetry, novels, plays, scientific treatises, and much else besides. And he is on his way to meet Napoleon, then the emperor of the French. Napoleon's meeting with Goethe as recounted by Goethe. The 2nd of October, 1808. Marshal Lon and Minister Marais have spoken about me, I think, favorably. I have known the former since 1806. I have been summoned to the Emperor for eleven o'clock in the morning. A fat chamberlain, Monsieur Paul, tells me to wait. The crowds disappear. I am introduced to Savory and Talleyrand. I am summoned into the Emperor's study. At the same time, Daru has his presence announced. He is immediately brought in. This makes me hesitate. I am summoned a second time. I enter. The Emperor is seated at a large, circular table. He is eating breakfast. On his right, at some distance from the table, is Talleyrand. On his left, Daru, with whom he discusses taxes. The emperor signals to me to approach. I remain standing in front of him at a suitable distance. After looking at me for a moment, he said, You are a man. I bowed my head. Who was this writer who commanded the respect of monarchs and men on the street, emperors and the everyman? How did he do that with his writing? What made him so successful? And what do we make of him today? Our guest, Richie Robertson, author of Goethe, A Very Short Introduction, helps us figure all this out today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. You are a man. You are a man. Okay. Nice praise for Mr. Goethe. Hello, everyone. We are enjoying the surge here at the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, by the way. I'm your host, Jack Wilson. Enjoying the surge of new listeners, that is, which seems to happen every January. We seem to be the kind of New Year's resolution podcast for a lot of people. Well, good. I'm glad you are joining us this year, and I hope you stick around. We'll try to be as entertaining as whatever we've replaced in your listening rotation. Speaking of entertaining, we have Richie Robertson here. Oh, boy, this is the good stuff. I don't know anything, really. Some of you won't be surprised if you're new to the show. Maybe you're surprised to hear me say that, or surprised to hear me admit it. I really don't know much. <laughs> but the good thing is my guests know an awful lot. Richie Robertson was here before to talk about Nietzsche, and that was great. And now, Goethe, what a writer and what a great guest to help us really dig in. That's coming up. But, but, but <laughs> here we go. <laughs> a little tongue-tied. Before we get going with Goethe, let's check in on another German-language author, Franz Kafka, our buzzy little nerve box, 
The Czech author, who we learned last time, was afraid of both the telephone and the gramophone. Poor little Franz. We're exploring the 99 pieces of Kafka's life laid out in the book, Is That Kafka? With the help of Google's random number generator. So let's spin the wheel or click the button, as the case may be. As always, I have not read the passage in advance. I will read it and decide how much time to spend on it. While you're on the break, I will make my assessment. If it's dull, we move on. Here we go. One through 99 and we get generate 52, which comes in the, oh, oh, this is a good section. The slapstick section. And it's called 52. The audience flees, Kafka stays. So there we go. Off with you, me lads and ladies. Dance and be merry. I'll head down into the mines and reemerge with whatever I find after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we are back. Number 52, the audience flees, Kafka stays. Hey, guess what? I like this one. It's a moment from Kafka's life, and his description of what happens here is terribly funny. So, here is what happened. On the day that Kafka's sister got married, he went to the wedding, and then later that evening, he attended a reading being given by the author Bernard Kellerman. It's hard to imagine literature playing that role in anyone's life today, either because literature isn't as prominent as it once was, or because a sister's wedding is that much more prominent. Can you imagine going to your sister's wedding in the afternoon and then dropping by a, a literary event that night? In any case, Kafka thought Kellerman seemed charming enough. He liked the opening remark of, quote, some unpublished writings from my quill, end quote. That was how Kellerman introduced his, what he was about to read. But Kafka soon came to realize that Kellerman was merely a mediocre writer. He was also a not very dynamic reader, and the audience started to trickle out. His reading went on way too long, and the trickle became a stream and then a flood. I'll let Kafka tell the rest of the story. He says, People kept slipping away, one by one, with such enthusiasm that you would have thought someone was reading next door. 
When he stopped to drink some mineral water about one-third of the way through his story, a whole crowd of people left. He was taken aback. It's almost over. He simply lied. <laughs> when, he was, when he was finished, everyone stood up. There was a little bit of applause, which sounded as if among all the standing people, one person had remained seated and was clapping to himself. But now Kellerman wanted to keep reading another story, maybe several. All he could do was stand there gaping as the people left. Finally, after some consultation, he said, I'd like to read a little fairy tale. It'll only take 15 minutes. I'll take a five-minute break. Some people stayed. So he read a fairy tale that had passages that would have justified anyone in running through and over the whole audience to escape, even from the very edges of the room, end quote. I love that people left, but I also love that Kafka was among those who stayed to the end. Even though he was an astute judge of literature, he, he believed this was mediocre, but why? Why? So why did he stay? Why be the person who stayed? Here's what I think. Clearly, the phenomenon of the writer being abandoned and desperate to maintain his dignity was as interesting to Kafka as the story itself. Probably far more interesting, actually. Kafka stayed out of courtesy, sympathy, and curiosity, is how his biographer put it. A typical display of Kafka's personality and his prose, the prose I just read, it's a little bit longer the passage, but I read you the highlights. That's a typical display, too. Kafka's humor, which is at its best, when the world is at its worst, or at least its most ridiculous. Okay, let's bring out our guest, Professor Robertson. But first, let me give you some details about Goethe. Just a minute or two to help orient you. Suddenly, a minute or two. Suddenly, I feel like Bernard Kellerman. I'm almost finished. He simply lied. That's such a beautiful sentence. I'll only read 15 minutes. I'll take a five-minute break. So, hmm. One or two minutes, I'll try to keep my promise and not drone on too much about this. Goethe was born in Frankfurt in 1749, the son of a bourgeois tailor and innkeeper who studied law and toured Europe buying up books and paintings. He took a strong interest in his children's education. Young Goethe, a writer, was the eldest of seven children, though he and his sister Cornelia were the only ones to survive into adulthood. His father, as I said, had decisive views on education. He oversaw the private tutoring that Goethe and Cornelia received at home. And Goethe then followed his father's wishes and went off to study law in Leipzig when he was about 16. But once he was there, he fell into a university crowd more literary than law-minded, and things would not be the same. He began writing plays he wrote poetry, and although he continued his legal studies enough to, to pass and to practice, his heart was now in literature. He was successful and became famous overnight thanks to some early successes, but it was the novel The Sorrows of Young Werther that truly put him on the map. This was published in 1774 when Goethe was still only 25, about to turn 26. It was fashioned after Rousseau's uh, book, Julie, or The New Eloise, and like that book, which we talked about in our episode on Rousseau, like that book, it made its author into a kind of European celebrity. 
for the next several decades. Until Goethe's death at the age of 82, he continued to publish his works, including Faust, which is often compared with Dante and Milton. He had a keen interest in science, particularly the subjects of botany, anatomy, and color. In 1850, Ralph Waldo Emerson chose six individuals whom he believed were particularly exemplary, representative men, he called them in his book. The men were Shakespeare, Napoleon, Montaigne, Plato, Swedenborg, and Goethe. Why? What made Goethe's writing so special? Is it fair to say that he is to Germany as Pushkin is to Russia, as Shakespeare is to England, and as Dante is to my dear, beloved Italy? We will ask our guest, Richie Robertson, after this. Okay, joining me now is Professor Richie Robertson, a fellow of the Queen's College, Oxford, and the Emeritus Schwartz-Taylor Professor of German at the University of Oxford. He joined us before for a discussion of his book, Friedrich Nietzsche, from the Critical Live series by Reaction Books. He's here today to discuss Goethe, a very short introduction from Oxford University Press. Professor Robertson, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So I thought this might be an interesting way to get this started. In 1951, Germany started to replace its German academies with the Goethe Institutes around the world. And this is where I first heard the name Goethe. It was when I was traveling in Italy, and there were Goethe Institutes there. I'm wondering why Germany chose Goethe as their post-war symbol of what they wanted to represent to the world about German culture. What image were they hoping that name would present to the world? Well, understandably, the, the opposite to the image of the years from 33 to 45 right. had created um, an image of high culture, mm-hmm. um, tolerance, yeah. what we would call liberalism, uh-huh. and of course, outstanding artistic achievement. Yeah, right. And yet, as you note in your book, Goethe often has a reputation of being distant and and unexciting and kind of a serene Olympian figure above ordinary human passions. But that seems like it's at odds with the actual Goethe. It is indeed. But in his latter years, Goethe, who, remember, lived to be 82, was increasingly reserved and remote. Oh, yeah. Visitors to Weimar, and people came to see him from all over the world, and found him often forbidding and difficult to get on with. Although the many conversations with him that are recorded, including the conversations written down by Secretary Eckermann for the last 10 years of his life, show a much, a much more affable figure. Hmm. So that's one reason. And I think another is that Goethe's works don't translate very well. Oh, yeah. And in the English-speaking world, especially in Victorian England, what people had readiest access to was his um, so-called maxims and reflections, mm. that is, um, short aphorisms, which frankly are rather dry, and his poetry and his verse plays especially were only available really to people with good German. Mm. Except in the Faust, of which there are countless translations some of them very good. 
Right. Okay. So when someone like Matthew Arnold, who said he was the greatest modern poet in the width and depth and richness mm -hmm. of his criticism of life, and he said he's by far our greatest modern man, was he mm -hmm. referring to uh, just Faust and the aphorisms, or was he somebody who was reading some of Goethe's other poetry and, and works? What was he basing yes. that on? He read widely at Goethe. His German was, was very good. Mm, mm -hmm. And you can see from the passages of Goethe that he quotes from his works um, how, how well read he was. Yeah. But even so, calling Goethe's works a criticism of life is true, but a bit one-sided. One it makes them sound rather boringly didactic. His dramas are about, about people in conflict. Uh. And his poetry is the expression of powerful feelings. Uh-huh. Um, so actually, much more exciting than Arnold's words would lead you to, th to think. Yeah. And he, Goethe, maybe we should back up and talk about sort of Goethe and where he was born and the times where he grew up. Because he, he it's easy to forget how much things were changed by the Romantic movement and things that... Mm -hmm that seemed that we might take for granted about poetry and what it should do and, and what the life of a poet would be like. Uh, that was all different after, mm. you know, we went through romanticism, but he kind of was at the forefront of it and kind of came before. So I'd like to get at the question of what he was doing that was different from his contemporaries and what stood out so much. But let's start with uh, where he was born. I guess it was 1749, uh, where where was he living? What kind of childhood was it? What kind of milieu was did he have to grow up in? Okay. Um, let me just say the way of preface. Now, to understand Goethe's formation, you have to think yourself back to a time when not only Romanticism, but the French Revolution and oh, Napoleon right. yeah. were still over the horizon and unimaginable. Yeah. Um, so Goethe was brought up in what seemed an epoch of security, he was born in Frankfurt, rich mercantile city in western Germany. You can still visit his house in the centre of town, a big four-storey townhouse. Um, his father lived on, on private means. Young Goethe and his sister didn't go to school, but they were, they were taught by their father and by private tutors. That was a very common arrangement. Um, he went to university, first at Leipzig, then at Strasbourg to study law. And in the early 1770s, he practiced as a barrister in mostly in Frankfurt, although he didn't, he didn't enjoy it very much because he was already writing. Hmm. Right. Okay. So was this in Germany at this point was uh, what kind of society was... was uh... Did it revolve around cities, or was it uh, part of a larger country? Was it Germany as we know it today? No, Germany was still divided into a very large number of principalities, hmm. um, all self-governing, some large, like the kingdoms of Prussia and Saxony, many very small. Goethe's hometown, Frankfurt, was a self-governing city. The number of independent states in Germany was reduced later on by Napoleon to 39. But in Goethe's young days, Germany was still a patchwork. Um, the vast majority of the population lived on the land in various degrees of poverty. Mm -hmm. um, Goethe belonged to, to the urban elite of Frankfurt. 
And although his father didn't have a, a job in the town council, that was because his, uh, his cousin, um, Goethe's uncle, was a town's councillor, and two members of the same family weren't allowed, to, weren't allowed to serve on the town council. So Goethe had a very privileged upbringing and, and life. Yeah. And then he developed the taste for writing, was it poetry that he was writing first? Um, yes, um, also dramas. Um, he wrote poetry from his um, very early years. And in fact, as a young man, um, he wrote poetry constantly, rather than Mozart composed music, you know, as though it was dripping out of him. Mm. One of his best-known, certainly best, early poems, entitled On the Lake, written during a holiday, holiday in Switzerland, survives in a notebook which Goethe had with him on a boat where he was crossing a Swiss lake with some friends. And he just wrote the poem down spontaneously in this notebook in the boat and, and revised it afterwards. Mm. Right. Which is maybe starting to get at this conception we have of a romantic poet who's who's in nature, who's inspired by it, who who maybe is is working quickly when the, the muse grabs them. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that was a conception that people had of writers prior to a Goethe. Well, romanticism is another, another matter, but certainly for, for Goethe's whole uh, life and work, the key word is nature. Mm. He celebrates nature, not, and not as an abstraction, but as something he feels immediately, um, and also, also as an object of knowledge. His poetry especially is full of great enthusiasm for, for the natural world, of which he feels himself an intimate part. Man, humanity for him, is not separate from nature, but absolutely an essential um, component of it. And when he says nature, he means, you know, not only fields, woods, and trees, he means um, also storms and and earthquakes. Mm. Nature, for him, is a creative force, but also destructive. It's two-sided. It has two faces. But for Goethe, the creative, positive, and above all, healing side of nature tends to, to predominate. He has a very positive outlook, generally. Mm. So this seems to take us right into his novel. Uh, so I'm guessing he was reading some of the early novels that were, were coming out in the mid-18th century. Yes. And then, well, tell us about his big breakthrough. Oh, certainly. We well, mentioned earlier novels. The earlier writer, particularly important for Goethe, is Rousseau. Uh-huh. In Rousseau, and especially in his best-selling novel, Julie, ou la nouvelle Héloise, you have, agreed, you have the most enthusiastic celebration of nature as Rousseau experienced it in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, Switzerland, for Rousseau, is also a place where human nature is relatively um, uncorrupted. Yeah. And the, the rhapsodies about nature in Rousseau are taken further by the young Goethe, above all, in his novel, uh, Werther, The Sufferings or the Sorrows of Young Werther, mm-hmm. first published in 1774, with the author was 24 going on 25, which made a sensation in Germany and indeed across Europe. And 
the duality of Goethe's view of nature is apparent there. Um, first of all, the young, the young Werther enjoys himself hugely in the bosom of nature, among simple country people, falling in love with a young woman. But then things go wrong. The young woman is already engaged. The rival appears in the scene. Werther, having too little to do with his time, falls into melancholy and what we would call severe depression. And he takes a different view of nature. Nature is now destructive. Every step you take destroys thousands of microscopic creatures under, under your feet. And nature seems to him a monster ceaselessly devouring its own brood. But even so, the positive view of nature is the one that predominates. And moods of severe gloom, like the one in part of Werther, are more the exception in Goethe than, than the rule. So Werther, by and large, is a tremendously heartening book, a work of celebration. Um, but it's clear that Werther is a pathological case. Goethe revised the novel to make that clearer. And his suicide is, is emphatically meant as a warning. Hmm. Um, absolutely not as encouragement. A warning in what sense? A warning, a warning not to get too caught up in your own feelings, hmm. not to become self-obsessed, yeah. because then you just make yourself wor worse. Um, a warning not to be egoistic, but to think of other people in the world. And of course, the novel, although it's written in letters, it also has a narrator who calls himself the editor and who plays a larger part in the revised version. And this gives us a different point of view from Werther's and let's just see how destructive Werther's passion is for the people around him. Mm. The young woman, Lotte, whom he's in love with, is married by this time, and Werther comes very close to causing the breakup of her marriage. And of course, his suicide, you can see in the novel, is also um, um, a terrible act of revenge on other people. Yeah. Was it viewed by the reading public as uh, this is a cautionary tale, or was it viewed by them as, look what you did to this beautiful man who only wanted to live and wanted to love and wanted to feel, and this is how the world grinds up a character like this? Um, a bit of both, but some, certainly, um, certainly the, the latter. Mm -hmm. That inspired immense enthusiasm, Yeah, and it was translated um, into, into French very soon, and into English, as widely read. When Goethe met Napoleon, Napoleon told him he had read Werther seven times. Yeah. <laughs> and the sympathy with Werther's feelings, which were brought very close to by his passionate letters, um, did tend to the most powerful reaction. Yeah. So maybe this question is impossible to answer, but do you have the feeling that people were reading it and saying, this is how I want the world to be and how I want to, to change myself to live in the world? Or do you think they were saying, this is how the world actually is, and he's just the first person who's brave and bold enough to identify it, and he's describing how we actually feel? Oh, I think a bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, because anyone would wish to be as um, enthusiastic and attractive a character as Werther is. Um, one, one of the good things about him, for example, is he's very fond of children mm. and li likes playing with them. And 
when Goethe is in good phase, he's inspiring to those around him. Um, so to that extent, he is a person one, one would wish to be like. But the novel shows him, I think, not ground down by a harsh world so much as a victim of his own, his own instability, mm. his own volatility, mm-hmm. his inability, finally, to control his own feelings. Yeah, right. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more about how this novel was received and what it meant for Goethe and his life. Okay, we're back with Richie Robertson. Professor Robertson, how do we measure the book's impact on the literature of Europe? I mean, it sounds like it was influential wherever it was published. Well, you certainly find a number of particular works which were modeled on it, but I think some real impact is something different. You mentioned Romanticism, Mm -hmm. and it would be absurd to say that Werther is really separate from Romanticism, the enthusiasm for nature, the enthusiasm for emotions, definitely makes it part of Romanticism, if you take Romanticism with a long perspective, um, just as much as Rousseau is. I don't actually think that the term Romanticism is terribly useful. It is, after all, only a way of grouping certain literary works together. Mm-hmm. But if you take it as a label for our diffuse and, and indefinable change of mood and sensibility that occurred in the literatures of Europe between, shall we say, roughly 1760 and 1830, and which went through various diverse phases in itself, then, then in that sense, Goethe is a key figure of the Romantic movement. Yeah. And what can we put our finger on? That is it the mind and body being fused together? Is it the setting morality aside in order to talk about the importance of living life uh, in the fullest and, and kind of chafing against the little restrictions of society and, and being small and feeling like, oh, these... Uh, you know, these things don't matter when you go out and you, you walk through a, a lightning storm or you, you mm-hmm. contemplate a, a great waterfall. That's where the, the world is reminding you that you need to be as big as you can and live in it and, and feel things mm-hmm. and love and, and mm-hmm. uh, have passion mm-hmm. and all of that. Is that kind of what we're talking about here, the movement from the small think, to the large? <laughs> I, think, I think all these things, yeah. you mentioned the mind and the body, um, in late 18th century Germany, people, especially philosophers and doctors, were very interested in the, in the connection between the mind and the body. How were the two, how were the two linked? This was a, ph- a philosophical puzzle. Goethe didn't try to answer it philosophically, but in Werther and his other works, he shows how powerful feelings are, are felt in the body. Mm. In one letter, for example, Werther tells you how an intense feeling rushes through all his veins if his foot accidentally touches Lotta's foot under under the table. Mm. And throughout his poetry, Goethe conveys how emotion is registered in the body, but also um, to get away from the limitations of the self and appreciate the world around one was very important for Goethe generally, 
Um, the distinctive thing about Goethe is that his enthusiasm for nature eventually developed into the informed study of nature. People talk a great deal about Goethe's science. I'm not sure whether science is quite the right term, mm. but he certainly devoted a very large part of his, of his time to the close study of nature. Yeah. Um, for example, of um, botany, of plants, of geology, of physiology, of anatomy. If you went to a walk with Goethe, he was the kind of person who would tell you what kind of rocks you're walking over, what kind of soil, um, what kind of clouds you could see and what they presaged, and what kind of climate the region had. Mm. So I think the important point is that whether you call it science or not, um, his enthusiasm didn't just um, dissipate, but turned into the search for knowledge. Right. Well, all of that strikes me as, well, that's perfect for a novelist. But he mm -hmm. also was doing this as, as sort of a scientist, writing treatises and so on. Are they, have they held up? Did he make any discoveries, or was he as, as good a scientist as he was a novelist? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I, well, briefly, no. But I think in a way, huh, one gets good or wrong by seeing him as a scientist, mm. in the sense that we would call a scientist. He wasn't really interested in making discoveries. In fact, he thought that most things about nature were already known, and the important thing was to describe nature. He did make one um, discovery, although that's been disputed, of the termaxillary bone. That's a small bone connecting the upper and the lower jaw, which is absent in adults, that can be found in, in embryos and sometimes in very young children. Mm. The important thing with it, about this bone is it exists in animals. And so if it can be discovered to exist in human beings, even in embryos, it's evidence that we're not separate from animals, but part of the animal kingdom. Mm. But right. business science wasn't really about finding things out. But one of his favorite words was contemplation. Unshallow. Um, he was opposed to the dominant paradigm of natural inquiry in his day. Um, the scientific revolution of the 17th century and subsequently depended on distinguishing what philosophers call primary and secondary qualities. Primary qualities were things like number, weight, size, dimensions. Secondary qualities were the things that we see and feel with our senses, like color and texture. Mm. These were illusory. What really mattered was the aspects of matter and motion that could be quantified, and that quantification made modern science possible. Now, Goethe didn't like this approach, yeah. um, and he thought that phenomena are real, not an illusion. Um, when you look at the blue sky, you really are seeing a blue sky. And he even disliked the use of um, artificial instruments to study nature. Mm. He occasionally looked through a telescope, even a microscope, but he thought that you were becoming too estranged from nature if you got too far away from what your unaided senses could perceive. Now, if you take that approach, that sets severe limits to what you can find out about nature. 
Um, for example, bioamidine senses, you couldn't tell that the material world is composed of atoms. But it was the phenomena that interested Goethe, and his view of nature is typified by a notebook entry made in Venice. He was at the Venetian lagoon watching crabs and sea snails, and he writes how infinitely marvelous a living being is, a, li a living creature is, how true, how being, the var, the giant. That's a strange use of language. Yeah. But I think we can tell immediately what he means. You'll have to put that one together for me. He's talking about the, the wonder oh. that the natural world inspires. Right, right. And he means when you see a crab walking about by itself, a living creature in its own world, pursuing its own purposes, not dependent on us at all, that is a matter for wonder. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when you were talking about his different approaches to science and the one that he preferred and the one that he didn't prefer, I, I had actually been thinking I can kind of see why that fits into a sort of novelist view of science. Mm -hmm. of, you know, this is one that when you described basically ways of seeing that humans are part of the animal kingdom and, and mm -hmm. feeling like, well, that tells us a lot about how we should interact with nature and what our... Mm -hmm relationship with our own body should be but if it's you know talking about trying to break things down into categories and is dimension a different kind of thing than a color and and so on it almost seems like it's abstracting everything to the point exactly, where yes, you can't yes, you know yes. you can't immerse yourself in it with your own mind because you're yeah. now kind of turning it into a, a clinical logical puzzle yep yep um Goethe would have felt much the same as Keats, because mm. there, there was a splendid rainbow once in heaven, um, and it goes on. Now we can analyze it. It is part of the, of the dull catalogue of common things. Mm. Yeah. And instead he wanted to, to see, is this going to make me weep? Is it going to make me fall in love? Is it going to make me feel like I'm, I'm you know, closer to God? Or it's more about the human being response to it. Time. Within the limits of his approach, Goethe was very keen on knowledge of nature. He was, for example, fascinated by geology, mm. and he had a great collection of specimens of minerals. Yeah, right. Ah, okay, so he also, as most novelists who are successful have, is a, a keen insight into human beings. And I'm wondering how that affected his interest in politics and religion and, and more of the human institutions like that. So let's start with the politics. He was, I guess, in his late 30s or maybe he was 40 when the French Revolution broke out. Was he, yep. was he writing about politics? Did he have a response to the French Revolution? He had. He called it the, the, the greatest of all catastrophes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he thought it was a disaster from the outset. Um, he didn't write about it directly, but he wrote a number of um, short satirical plays mm. um, showing what happens, for example, when a, a would-be revolutionary arrives in a small village and upsets the inhabitants. Mm. Um, one of the reasons why he admired Napoleon was that Napoleon, in his view, had brought the revolution to an end mm. and established stable government. Right. So Goethe was def definitely a conservative, not in the modern sense of a free marketeer. He didn't think much of economics, but of somebody who thought stability was good 
and that reform should take place only, only gradually. Right. But it seems like in his books, he also felt like people should be free to be who they want to be and should fall in love. And he seems sort of mm -hmm. uh, the opposite of conservative, as we might think of it today, In at least when he was younger. Well, politically um, um, conservative, but um, at the same time, he believed in being oneself, in realizing oneself. He led, in many ways, a deliberately unconventional life. Hmm. From the end of 1775 onwards, he lived in Weimar. He was invited there initially as companion to the young duke, who just um, reached the age of 21 and assumed control. But very soon, he was brought into government as one of the four-man Privy Council. So, to that extent, he lived a conventional life. On the other hand, he and the young duke went on wild escapades in the country. Good had to cope somehow with the stuffy conventional society of Weimar, which was a small town mm. where everyone was always gossiping about each other. Yeah. He couldn't stand it after a while and took off for Italy for two years. As soon as he came back in the summer of 
that it didn't bother him too much. Uh-huh. And uh, he wasn't in in danger or anything like that. And he, he lived, I mean, throughout his life, he lived basically as a celebrity, right? Yes, that's right. No, he wasn't in any physical danger or danger to take him to court or anything like that. Mm. He would get away with a very great deal. That was his attitude to the churches. As I said, extremely skeptical. He once um, described himself as a decided non-Christian. Mm, right. He didn't care for atheism. He thought that atheism was uh, shallow and uh, mistaken. He didn't like the atheism of, that he attributed to Voltaire, for example. But on the other hand, but, um, what he professed was what was called natural religion. You can see, if you look around you, if you look at nature, that it was designed by a wise intelligence, and that's really all you need to know. Mm. So he seems to have sort of the view, it almost sounds like a commonsensical view of, you know, there are definitely problems, there are things that need to be changed, but these institutions are made by human beings and they can be wrong. But on the other hand, if we were to throw the whole thing out, uh, what humans would come up with would probably be worse. Um, definitely. And of course, in his old age, he became more set in his ways. Mm -hmm. um, strange example, he was opposed to the liberalization of the laws on divorce the Duke of Weimar wanted to introduce. Right. But um, all of us become a bit more crusty in our yeah. old age, and Goethe was no exception. Was he attacked by the younger generations at some point? Did they view him the way some of the romantic poets viewed Wordsworth, for example, of like, yeah, we can, we can get on board with him when he was in his 20s and 30s, but boy, this guy now is, uh, it's, it's disappointing that he's not supporting what yes. we want. Yes, from the beginning of the 19th century, the younger generation regarded him as somebody who had done great things, but was already a bit of a back number. Mm -hmm. The romantic poet Novalis, for example, said, Goethe can and will be overcome. Mm, but Goethe right. didn't help, because his later works are increasingly esoteric and difficult to understand. Um, the imagery from chemistry in electroaffinities, for example, is not that easy to understand. Um, above all, the second part of Faust, which um, was published only after his death in 1832, absolutely baffled everyone. People felt that, that um, the later Goethe wasn't writing for them, why should they bother with him? Mm -hmm. And not, not only that, but um, the 19th century German, German public um, was increasingly keen on morality, the kind of morality that we think of as Victorian. And the fact that Goethe had lived with a woman without being married to her um, was thought to be a great blot on his reputation. Mm, right. Whereas today we might say it shows that he was willing to follow his heart. Oh, absolutely. And his erotic poems could not all be published during his lifetime. Mm. When the Weimar edition of Goethe's works came to be prepared in the later 19th century, running to 163 volumes, the editors were disconcerted to find a poem called Das Tagebuch, The Diary, which is about um, an extramarital sexual encounter, um, a narrative poem in which the man finds that um, he's obliged to be faithful to his wife after all because the part of his body, which in the poem is called The Master, refuses to stand upright. Mm. 
<laughs> so it's a poem about, about erectile failure. Yeah. <laughs> and now, very good and also very moral, also spot on of the relation between emotions and the body. Right. But it, it, it was too much for the, for the 19th century. Yeah, right. But rather than, it almost seems like in earlier generations, they would feel embarrassed by this. Oh, our great poet, our great man has done this. And today we might look at it as, oh, this is an interesting side of him. This gives us a little more to consider and and think about. And it shows that he's he's, uh, got some different angles to him that we didn't see before. Very very much so. And Goethe has many angles to him. And I must say that, that much of the best of Goethe is in his poetry, but poetry about its very nature, and especially Goethe's, tends not to survive translation. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I can recommend for someone who wants to start yeah. the translation of Faust, parts one and two, okay. by the late David Luke, published in the Oxford World's Classics. Okay, that is good. That is a play I've seen, mm-hmm. which is a good place to start. Where? What else should we read? Is there anything well, else? You'll, you'll, read, you'll read Werther. Yeah. And there are a, a number of translations. Mm-hmm. Okay. How is he viewed in Germany, if we're trying to understand his importance? I know he's often, you know, Russia has Pushkin and, and England has Shakespeare and so on. And Goethe often gets that kind of label. Is he read by school children? Are, are grown-ups reading and enjoying? Or is he, is he widely quoted? Or is he more like, oh, yeah, we have a statue of Goethe, but, but uh, not many people read him anymore? Well, pretty much the latter, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, people read Goethe at school and, and, are put, and are often put off for life. <laughs> After the fact, the Goethe language is often, is often not easy. Mm-hmm. That 18th century German is a bit different from the present-day language. That um, in his plays, the dramatic conventions of the neoclassical drama are quite hard to get, to get used to. And so you have to overcome a number of barriers. But um, with Werther, and part one of Faust, um, I think um, these are still his most accessible works. Mm-hmm. They definitely still resonate. And what also fascinates me as someone interested in the history of literature is just reading these 19th century novelists and how they revered Goethe. Mm-hmm. You know, George mm-hmm. Eliot and Matthew Arnold and, yep. and the the people we some of the people we've discussed. And and Napoleon just mm-hmm. seemed to be full of uh, boundless admiration for him. Uh, mm-hmm. It really does give one the sense that Goethe cracked something open that maybe we can't even see how important he was anymore because everything that followed comes out of his, you know, what he had, basically the impact that he had. Yes, and that is be confirmed by a lot of different reference to Goethe. Thackeray in Vanity Fair condemns the immorality of the Germans in matters of sexual relations and says, but no wonder in the country where Goethe's electoral affinities is consider, considered a moral book. So Goethe's ability to be detached from an institutional marriage um, rubbed Thackeray up the wrong way, but confirms Goethe's independence of mind. Yeah. Right. Or the reference I love that the monster in Frankenstein and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is reading Goethe and finds Werther a a never-ending source of speculation and wisdom. Yes, and he thinks 
they have to a divine being. <laughs> yes, that is wonderful. Right. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. Professor Richie Robertson, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Richie Robertson for joining me. Busy, busy, busy. That is us, dear listeners. We have a jam-packed schedule for you this year. 104 episodes in the works, and we already over-delivered with that two-parter, thanks to Ms. Edith Wharton. Got a little carried away with her. Do check those two out if you want to know what kind of readers she admired and what kind of readers she decidedly did not hint. It might not be what you think. We have Willa Cather on the horizon and John Milton and Persuasion. There's a good heads up for you. Jane Austen's Persuasion, a two and maybe three part episode on that one is in the works with a couple of special guests, one of them being your old friend, Mike Palindrome. Might be fun to reread that novel or to watch one of the films to get ready coming up in another month or so, I think. William Faulkner's biographer is going to be here soon, so please do sign up, subscribe, post-haste, as they say. Speaking of post-haste, it is time for me to go so I can get started on the next episode and you can get back to your own hopefully wonderful lives. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>